invite you to open your Bibles with me. We turn together to the game to the book of Genesis. Today, Genesis 25, and we'll read the first 11 verses. Genesis 25, <clears throat> verses 1 through 11. Continuing with our series on Abraham, you may recall that in the previous sermon we dealt with the death of Sarah and the marriage of Isaac. And now we pick up the reading, Genesis 25, verse 1. Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan began Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Latushim, and Leumimim. The sons of Midian were Ephat, Epher, Hanok, Abadah, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac his son, to the country of the east. This is the sum of the years of Abram's life which he lived, 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephon, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, in the field which Abram purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried, and Sarah his wife. And it came to pa pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Beer, Beer Lahai Aroi. Thus far the reading, may God bless both the reading and the exposition of his word. <clears throat> Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is the tenth and final sermon in the series of sermons that we have been engaged in for the last half year or so on the life of Abraham. Whenever you take on preaching from an Old Testament passage, it's true of all passages, but it becomes doubly significant in the Old Testament, it is very important that you in preaching, not simply go through the narrative as a historical exercise. Preaching is not Bible study. In fact, to be faithful, the preacher really has to allow the congregation to answer three core questions about the passage from which he is pre preaching. First of all, what does this mean in the original? Why is this passage here? The story of Abraham that we have been studying is a story, as I mentioned in the first sermon, that takes place in the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis means beginnings. And the book of Genesis is divided into ten Toledes. While that's a little more obvious in the Hebrew, in English, we recognize them by the introduction, and these are the generations of. 
Together, the book of Genesis is telling us the history of the world. And the section we have been paying attention to from Genesis 11, verse 25, and which we will finish now with chapter 25, verse 11, that section, these are the generations of Terah, is intended in many ways to teach us about the beginnings of the foundation of the church. Prior to this, God had his people, Adam, Abel, Seth, but they, Noah. But they were individual believers who together with their families worshipped God. But we have not had the account of God bringing together the church in a united way. But over the life of Abraham, what we have seen is God coming to Abraham, taking him from the land of Ur, coming with this threefold promise, which on eight separate occasions we have seen God give very directly to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. You will have children, you will have land, and in you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And we have seen how that comes to fulfillment ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we really have here is the beginnings, the foundations of the gathering of the church. So what does this text mean? Why is Genesis in the Bible? Why is it important that we understand something about the life of Abraham and what is included in Genesis 11 through 25? Well, what's important about it is the fact that we have real history that God from the beginning of time has been busy gathering the church. And so the first question the preacher has to provide is an understanding of what does this text mean in its original context? Why is it here? Why is it included? The second question involves doctrine. Where does this fit in in the overall message of the Scripture? You see, the Bible is not a collection of 66 random books put together. The Bible is not simply the accumulation of a bunch of stories or a particular take on history. No, the Bible is a message that God has sent, a special revelation in which he provides for us what is necessary for us to live. And so that message needs to fit within the Bible. Now, obviously, the origins of the church is a significant element of it. But as we have already seen, and when we consider Genesis 17, for example, where it talked about Abraham believing the promises of God and being counted for him for righteousness, we have seen how that Old Testament text, in fact, becomes one of the foundational texts in the New Testament. Paul, in, in Romans 4, uses it to exposit and to explain the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. James, in his epistle, uses it and uses the life of Abraham to talk about the relationship between faith and works. And so what we have in the life of Abraham is a real-life example of someone who believed and lived by the doctrines that the Scripture teaches. And so we have in Abraham's life a calling. And that's the third part 
that belongs to faithful preaching. You explain the text in its original context. You fit it within the message of the Scriptures. The preaching isn't random. It applies to a particular people at a particular time. And the question you have to answer is, what does this mean for this audience on this day? How does the Word apply to us in our particular context? And so we have worked our way together through the life of Abraham. And now we come to a passage which is about the death of Abraham. And indeed, when we look at this as part of the whole story of Abraham, it takes on significance. But I want to suggest to you this afternoon it takes on special significance in its application for how the people of God are called to view their own death. So this afternoon with you I want to, looking at the passage and seeking to be faithful to the text, draw out of it some particular lessons for you and I as we recognize the fact that whatever differences there are among us, and here we are gathered as a gathering of several hundred, there are no two people alike But unless the Lord returns, this I can say with absolute certainty, the one thing we all have in common is that we're going to die. Every one of us. Now when the world deals with death, it sees it as a very sad and a very negative thing. Ordinarily, when we talk about life, we talk about youth with excitement, the vigor of youth, the joys of youth. And then as people age and death becomes imminent, we somehow think that their life becomes somewhat less, and ultimately they deal with the sicknesses and the decays that accompany old age, and eventually they die. The way the world tells the story of life, it's the story of light to darkness. But that's not the way the Bible deals with death. Oh yes, death was not there in the Garden of Eden. The wages of sin is death. Death has a very dark, a very difficult element to it, and we will deal with that. But ultimately, Death for the believer is the passage to glory. A few weeks ago, the pastor, pastor Dibbett brought to our attention in a sermon something I hadn't really ever thought of before. Already in Genesis 1, the, in, the order is inverted. It says the evening and the morning was the next day. The biblical narrative goes from darkness to light. And indeed, if we look at the Scriptures as a whole, we have in Genesis 1 and 2 the perfect creation. In Genesis 3, we have the fall and darkness. And the rest of the Scriptures are a progression to the light of Revelation 20 to 22, in which there's a city in which God is the light of the city. They don't need the sun or the moon. It's a story. The Scriptures are a story of light. 
And so let's together this afternoon consider the passage under the theme, Living and Dying in Light of God's Promises. First of all, we will see a complete life. Secondly, a preparation for death. And thirdly, an accompanied eternity. If you take a look at our passage, when we come to verse 8, it almost seems emphatic, doesn't it? Did you catch that as we read it? Verses 7 and 8. This is the sum of Abram's life which he lived, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years. Why does it say it three times? What effectively seems like the same thing? Well, in the Hebrew, that phrase that is translated a good old age, it communicates something about the respect that was there in Middle Eastern cultures for age. Older people were seen as having wisdom. And Abraham is described here as someone of a good old age. It's not the picture of a frail or a bitter man near the end of his life, regretting the fact that his life was almost over. No, the picture created and the phrase that's translated a good old age is that Abraham came to be 175 and he was of an age here in which he was delighting. Yet in life, he was a desirable man. The phrase translated old man has the the notion of dignity attached to it. Now the phrase that's translated full of years is actually not quite that way in the original. The of years has been added by the translators. It actually just says full in the Hebrew. And there is debate in terms of how exactly that word in the Hebrew ought to be interpreted. What might be included in the phrase, Abraham was full? Well, certainly, Abraham had a blessed long life. Now, in those days, life expectancies were somewhat different than they are in ours. The three-score year, the 70 or 80 years that are talked about in the Psalms, We're not there in the early part when the world was started with Adam and Eve and the population, God had created it so that the population was also expanding in the earth. As a matter of fact, Noah had just died two or three years when Abraham was born. And so the actual generations from Adam to, to Abraham in terms of overlapping 2,000 years roughly had passed, and probably only five or six generations, depending on in terms of overlapping of life. Subsequently, life expectancies became much shorter. That said, Abraham lived 175 years. The first 75 years in Ur of the Chaldees, where he was a moon worshiper together with his family. For the last 100 years, we have been following him As a nomad, as someone who heard the call of God, went from Ur of the Chaldees through Haran to the Promised Land and traveled around the Promised Land. And indeed, his life was full. 
When Adam was created, God said it was not good for man to be alone. And when we were introduced to to Abraham, he was already married to Sarah. And for over 60 years, Sarah was his wife. As we reflected on in our last sermon, although we don't have all the details in Genesis, when we take the other scriptures and what they say about Sarah, we have the picture of a partnership between Abraham and Sarah. In spite of the challenges, it would seem they had a good marriage. And Sarah has died, and as we turn to Genesis 25, we are introduced to Keturah. As we read it here, it would appear that the marriage to Keturah happened after Sarah's death. There are actually good reasons, and I'm not going to get into the debate. Uh, There are good Reformed scholars on both sides. Some accept that to be the case. Many others, including John Calvin, say that can't be the case given the dates of the children and that not only did, while Abraham was married to Sarah, did he likely have Keturah as another wife, it's clear he also had other concubines. This is not being justified, but it certainly was the norm for the time. That said, Abraham did not live life alone. He was not a lonely man. He did not live in isolation. He had his wife. He had a significant family, and he had an entire community that he was the part of. We know he has at least eight sons. The focus of the story has been on Isaac. But we have also seen the birth of Ishmael and Ishmael being dealt with, and now we are introduced to six other sons in verse 2 of our passage. And while most of the names seem distant from us, we undoubtedly, as we read through, recognize the name of Midian. Now it is important for us to remember when assessing the life of Abraham that while Isaac was the son of promise, God promised in Genesis 17 to Abraham that you will be the father of many nations. And indeed, we see that not only is Abraham the father of Isaac and of Israel, Abraham is indeed claimed to this day as the father of many other, especially Arab nations who trace their lineage through Ishmael. And in Bible times, Midian also being a nation from the east. And while these Children are not saved. They are not part of the covenant. They yet are portrayed in the Bible as blessings to Abraham. And I don't want to go too far down this road because it's a difficult passage and I'm not sure what entirely to do with it. But when you go to Isaiah 60, you will see that Speaking of the new heavens and the new earth in apparent prophetic way, foreseeing what is going to come in the future, Isaiah talks about the ships of Tarshish bringing in various goods. And in verse 6, it talks about the dromedaries and the camels of Midian being brought for the benefit of the people of God to the glory of the Lord, it says. 
Yes, obviously, the Scriptures make very clear that we desire that children are a blessing, and especially children who are born and raised and learn to love the Lord. And as parents, we want nothing more for our children than that. And yet the Scriptures speak objectively of a blessing, a fullness, if you will, in the children and grandchildren that we have. Yes, Abraham had a full life. He had a wife, he had children. By the time he dies, Jacob and Esau are 15 years old, Isaac and Rebekah's the fruits of Isaac and Rebekah's marriage, and we can imagine that as they are living together, they have the joys of companionship and family. Abraham's a rich man. We have seen that many times. He has a great reputation in the community. It could be, and indeed, I think when it says Abraham died a full man, that all of these things are in view. And yet, I think if we're going to be Look at the text carefully. That's not what's primarily in view. They are included, but they are not the most important things about Abraham's fullness. And here is where we have to let Scripture also uh, interpret Scripture. What makes Abraham a full man, uh, uh, die a full man? Well, the fact that he was born a man who was empty, empty of grace, an enemy of God. Very starkly in his case. A moon worshiper who knew nothing about God. God in his providence had reached down into Abraham's life and his sovereignty had called him. And yes, his journey of faith was a difficult one. We have followed its ups and downs. And yet, Abraham believed the promises of God and it was counted to him for righteousness. He could die knowing that God was his friend, that his sins had been paid for, that he could come before the throne of God. He had received the promises and he could know that the promises didn't depend on him or his obedience. No, he had seen God in miraculous ways overcome his disobedience. And here was Isaac, the son of promise. And here were Jacob and Esau, the grand, his, his grandsons, the promised line would continue. He was gifted to see the future of the church. And he saw God's care and protection for him. Indeed, the scriptures say, what does a prophet a man if he gain the whole world but lose his own soul? Yes, Abraham, we read in our text, was 175 years, he breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full. As you come to church this afternoon, and you take a look at your accounts, your assets and your liabilities, what is it that you have before God? Can it be said of you this afternoon that you are full? That the sin that was on your account as you were born, that original sin, 
The sins that you and I commit every day, the sins of omission, sins of commission, the sin of unbelief, of having the gospel and not believing it. Are those sins covered? Can you before God this afternoon say, I am full because Christ has covered it all? Indeed, that's where Abraham's fullness came from. He believed God. It was counted for him for righteousness. He had the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ on his account. And he knew he could die and go before the judgment seat of God. Did he understand all of this with the theological precision that we have? I doubt it. But God, by his Spirit, gave him the grace to know that God who had promised would be faithful. And yes, he was full, and God had given him many blessings, and he was thankful for that. Abraham was full because he died right with God. He believed it was counted to him for righteousness. Which brings us to our second point, a prepared for death. What did Abraham do with this fullness? Was this a something he had and passively sat waiting for the time when God would call him home? No, the bulk of our text actually outlines for us the active preparations that Abraham took to prepare for his death. Did you notice that? Abraham, we are told, gave all that he had to Isaac. Abraham sorted out his will and his estate. And he did so faithfully, not using the world's standards, but recognizing that Isaac was the promised son, that Isaac was the one that he was to provide for and to be the special child of the covenant, the child of promise. And we read he faithfully gave all that he had to Isaac. Well, you say, that's hardly fair. What about his other sons? Well, it notices it. Did you notice? He took care of them too. Verse 6, But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines that Abraham had. How exactly this all worked out, we're not clear, but Abraham had an abundance of wealth, and it would seem that all of Abraham's children were taken care of. And we know that Abraham, while we don't know a ton about his personality, we saw even as he had to send away Hagar and Ishmael, that he had an empathetic heart that he cared for them, he wasn't indifferent to them, and we have every reason to believe, also based on this passage, that he took care of them in an appropriate manner. And then what did he do? Verse 7, Abraham, and while he was still living, he sent them, referring to the sons of the concubines, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac his son, to the country of the east. Abraham could foresee that the legacy that he had with Isaac as the son of promise and all of these other sons who would become countries in their own right, that that was leading to a recipe for war and for conflict. And proactively, before he died, he foresaw these arrangements and he took steps to separate the sons. And that he did so successfully is 
evidenced by the fact that when he died, Ishmael and Isaac come together. They clearly have a good relationship. They bury their father together. Abram's very sober-minded about the fact he's going to die. Now, 30, 37, 38 years pass between the death of Sarah and the death of Abraham. There's a fair bit of time covered in the midst of all of these passages. And what the picture that is given of Abraham is not him having retired and accomplished things and simply waiting, but proactively dealing with the fact that he's going to die and putting his house in order. Indeed, that was the instruction God gave Hezekiah, didn't he? When he said, you're going to die, set your house in order. Are you and I living in a way that is setting our house in order for after we die? As I was reflecting on this, I found it convicting to ask myself in my own arrangements, how much am I thinking about providing for myself while I live, and how much am I thinking about what happens and how to steward the gifts that God has given me after I die. Set your house in order that you may die. Abraham has a mature faith. Early on in Abraham's life, we saw Abraham being very impetuous, didn't we? He had been called, he had been sent to, to the land of Israel. A famine came, and what did he do? took matters into his own hands, and he went off to Egypt. He was called to wait patiently for the birth of a son. Him and Sarah arranged instead for him to take on a mistress, and Ishmael was born. But now, as we have seen, especially over the last several chapters, and we saw with the testing of the sacrifice of Isaac, Abram's faith has matured. And what we have in our text is a picture of a mature faith preparing to die. Over the last several years in my day job, I have been very engaged in the assisted dying debate. The euthanasia debate as it has worked its way into the law of our land. It was struck tied into that is the provision of palliative care and how do we, do we deal with death. And I think we live in a cultural moment which perhaps more starkly than any other time in history contrasts the Christian versus the secular understanding of death. What is this big craze in our society towards euthanasia. 90% of us, according to statistics, are going to die a death in which the time of death is reasonably foreseen. About 10% of people die in a sudden accident, a heart attack, an aneurysm, something sudden. About 90% of people die in a circumstance in which it is knowable that in the next days, weeks, months, you are likely to die. Most of us are given the opportunity to prepare for death. 
That's a very troubling concept to the secular mind. To think of death without God makes humans very afraid. And so we have in our own day a movement towards euthanasia. And on the face of it, they say it's to avoid suffering. And yes, death is a painful process. The wages of sin is death. It's a consequence of sin. And yet, with the help of modern medicine, the worst of pain for most circumstances can be dealt with through medicine in our day. That's not really the real issue that's being driven at. You see, what human beings want is autonomy. They want control. They want to decide. And there is something about the move towards assisted dying in which it is the decision. I'm not going to let God decide when my life is over. I'm in control. I'm going to decide how and when I die. Oh yes, it's an expression of an unredeemed heart militating against God. The Scriptures, throughout the whole Scriptures, but also illustrated here in the life of Abraham, present a very different picture of how the believer is to deal with death. We are to prepare for it. It was a secular palliative care book on medicine that I read about five years ago that actually highlighted, I think, very helpfully what it is. It said, the focus of care, and it was arguing against perhaps the over-hospitalization and the over-medicalization of death in which we keep people alive, and it said, we need to understand when you have a terminal disease, we need to do care in light of the purpose of life. And it listed five things. The author said, when you die, there are five things that most people need to contend with. There's someone to whom they need to say, I'm sorry. There's someone to whom they need to say thank you. There are people that they need to tell that they love. There are dependents that they have to assure will be okay after they're gone. And they will have to assure others that they're okay after they're gone. And as I thought of that and it came to mind as I was preparing this week, I thought actually in God's common grace he provided a fairly complete summary here of how it is we ought to prepare to die. Is there anybody here this afternoon who has unsettled accounts? People to whom you ought to have said, I'm sorry to, and you know it, but you haven't done it. Have we appropriately communicated our thanks to those on whom we are dependent in various ways, with whom we live our lives? Do we communicate our love to those who are near and dear to us? Have we set our house in order? Have we made provisions in terms of our estate and our will and ensuring that those we're responsible for will be taken care of 
And above all, have we settled our accounts with God? Well, you see, preparing to die is also preparing to live. Because which of those five things really focuses only on death? Indeed, would we not here have something in terms of also living our life? And so I ask you, believers, those who are full, those who confess that Jesus is mine and my trust is only in him, as you are living your life, are you preparing for the time when your life will be over? That's the picture we have in our text of Abraham. Spending his last years preparing to die. There's one more aspect of our text we need to draw our attention to. We do that under our third point. Did you notice at the end of verse 8? Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. It's in the passive tense. Abraham didn't choose the moment of his death. Life was taken from him. But it says... He was gathered. What is this referring to? Well, it's not referring to the fact that he went back to his forefathers. We know that he grew up in Ur of the Chaldees. But this passage makes very clear he's buried with Sarah, his wife, in the tomb of Machpelah. So it doesn't refer to the fact that he went to be buried alongside his father or his grandfather. Clearly, it means something different. And here's where, again, we can let Scripture interpret Scripture. In the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, that chapter of the heroes of the faith, Abraham is included, perhaps with more detail than any other, on that long list of names. Hebrews eleven thirteen says, These all died in faith, including Abraham. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, but were assured of them, embraced them, confessing that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have an opportunity to return, but now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God. He has, been, he has prepared a city for them. Yes, Abraham was accompanied to the heavenly city. You see, on the one hand, death is very personal. It's something we do alone. But we are not alone in death. We go from this life to a life that is not just us and God, but a great assembly, a city that God is preparing. Jesus told the disciples in the upper room, let not your heart be troubled, believe in God. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. 
I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. When the believer dies, he goes to be with Jesus and with fellow believers in that great mansion, in that heavenly city. Oh, does that mean the process of dying is is pleasant? No. The Scriptures describe it as a valley of the shadow of death. But what what does Psalm 23 say? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The believer is assured of the fact that we are accompanied not just after death, but we are accompanied through death. Isaiah 43, Now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, I have redeemed you. I've called you by my name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, nor will the flames scorch you. Abraham was gathered. Yes, God's people must personally cross the valley of the shadow of death, but we don't do so alone. God accompanies us to take us home. Home. To the city with many mansions. To all the saints, Abraham went home to be with Sarah, to be with Jesus. Oh, Abraham didn't have 1 Corinthians 15, but he had biblical hope and trust. Having not received the promises, he believed them to the city that God prepared. He was accompanied. Hebrews 11 says, when it goes through this whole list, now therefore, because we are a company surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, O believer, even as you face your own death, know that there is this cloud of witnesses prepared for your coming. The picture in Hebrews is as cheering through the stadium of life those who've gone before to the finish line of death and rejoicing. In sinners who come. Abraham was accompanied through death. Does that mean that when he got to heaven, he knew exactly Sarah and everyone else? We don't have the the Bible is quite silent in terms of how that all will work. And we shouldn't go where the Bible doesn't. That said, when on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah came to talk with Jesus and Peter, James, and John were there, they, they didn't need any introductions. Peter knew who they were. Oh yes, believer, Abraham is alive today. He was accompanied into death. And today is in glory. These are events that occurred about 4,000 years ago. These are the generations of Terah, is how the passage began. And indeed, the reason the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings is there is it's a book of beginnings under God's promises. Beginnings have endings. 
and the endings of the life of Abraham is not he died, but he was accompanied. And indeed, a day with a thousand years are but as a day. Abraham died about 4,000 years ago. If we use that analogy, he's only four days into his life in eternity of rejoicing in God together with his fellow believers. We have studied together the life of Abraham. And the message of the book of, Abraham, uh, the book of Genesis is not, oh, try to be like Abraham. I don't know what your perspectives on Abraham were when we began. Well, perhaps we usually think of Abraham being the triumphant, obedient person on top of Mount Moriah. We're willing to sacrifice his son, but as we have seen, most of the story is not the story of faith and obedience. It's the story of struggle. But God taught him. God prepared him. And God, who was faithful to his promises, took him home. What will you do with the story of Abraham? Will you use it to prepare for your own death? Not as a dark chapter to be avoided, but as the light that follows the darkness. The evening and the morning were the next day. God is preparing for his people a place of glory. And he has promised to accompany them and to take them home, and not one, not one will be lost. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, it was a sobering set of verses that called our attention this afternoon. The account of a man dying. 4,000 years ago, a man we know primarily because his story is told to us on the pages of Scripture. And Lord, it was a mixed story. And yet it was a story of a sinner saved by grace. It was a story of your promise of your goodness. And so we pray even this afternoon, work with your Holy Spirit. Lord, God of Abraham, be our God also. Grant that we may trust you, that we may believe in you. And Lord, that we may live our lives even preparing for our death to your honor and to your glory. We thank you for the opportunity of worship. Forgive that which was sinful. Be with us as we leave this place. We ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen.